Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 25. Next Sunday we'll uh, have kind of an Easter um, message. And then um, the following week we'll get back into to Genesis. The world in which you live rejects the institution of marriage. God's ideal is deemed by some as nothing more than fantasy, unrealistic, unattainable, even impractical. To others, it is hate speech. But those who think this way do not understand the goodness of God, nor the hope to which he calls us. Before I enter into this discussion, this this sermon, this passage, you need to hear that God knows you. He knows full well if you've been living in a difficult marriage. He knows if you have the unfulfilled longing to be married. Maybe you question the goodness of the institution of marriage because you have lived in a home full of fighting or strife. God understands. He cares deeply for you. And he understands that even in a world full of people, you can feel alone. Wherever you are, he wants to meet you. He understands you in a way that no one else does. And I hope, maybe more than anything else today, that as we walk through this passage, you will see the goodness of your God. I pray that as you see his final plan for marriage, I pray that your heart will be stirred. You see, it is in his creation of the woman that God begins to show us his final plan for the church. So whatever degree of loneliness that you are experiencing today, God ultimately calls you to embrace Jesus. He is the only sure and ultimate solution to your loneliness. In Genesis 1, we were given a brief summary statement of the creation of the man and the woman. We learned there that God created two sexes, male and female. We saw that the male and the female were both made in the image of God, and that only together could they fulfill God's command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And only together would they be able to take dominion over the home that God had created for them. Genesis 2 focuses on an entirely different purpose. What we see in Genesis 2 is nothing less than the creation of communion. At least communion among people. For as we will see the model of communion, the eternal model of communion, is the triune God himself. 
Follow along with me as I read to you Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25, the word of God for the people of God. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. May God bless his holy word to our hearts. Verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. God describes to us his process in creating the first woman. And it is in the details of the process that we can begin to see the character and the goodness of God in his plan. He's the one who knows the end from the beginning. And when he fashions the first woman, he has in mind another woman. In verse 18, God declares that it is not good that man should be alone. How does God know that? Of course, God knows everything. But why is it not good that man should be alone? What does God even mean by alone anyway? The truth is he wasn't completely alone, was he? He was in unbroken fellowship with God. And we may not know much about that relationship, but it clearly existed. God spoke with Adam as a father speaks to his son. But whatever the dynamics of that relationship, it was a relationship between the creator and the created. Now, sin did not separate man from God at this time, but the order of being still separated them. The quality and intensity of the communion that God and Adam could experience was only a dim reflection of the community that God experienced within his own triune self. But when God made Adam, 
He made him in his image. Therefore, he builds into Adam's very being a need to experience the same sort of oneness and communion that were existing between the persons of the Trinity. Because God knows himself, and because he perfectly knows the man that he has created, he recognizes the aloneness, and it's not being good even before Adam feels it. How often do we in our situations think that God does not understand us or that he doesn't care about our situation? The truth is, God understands your situation and your pains and your struggles even before you feel them. And he understands them way better than you understand them. What is more, even before Adam cries out for God to fulfill his need, God is already taking steps to meet that need. Now, I want you to think about God and Trinity just for a moment. One God existing in three persons. Now, that, that truth is more perfectly revealed to us after the incarnation of Christ, after the pouring out of the Spirit. I get that. But it is only the reality of that interworking of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that, that uh, is the basis for which God says it's not good for man to be alone. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are of the same essence. There's not three gods. And yet the Father and the Son and the Spirit are different from one another in persons. They're not the same person. There are three persons. There's an, there's an otherness in the Trinity. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. And the Spirit is not the Son or the Father. There's an otherness in the communication that takes place. They can give love and affection to one another. They can receive love and affection. And as they unselfishly give love to one another and receive love from one another, they experience harmony and blessedness. We can rightly say that although God is one, he is definitely not alone. God understands the deepness of the joy, the profoundness of communion within his own one being. And so he looks at man, he's made man in his image, and he sees man reflecting God in a created being, but reflecting God, and he says, it's not good for him to be alone. Man needs communion with someone who is of the same essence as himself. 
And until this oneness takes place, until this oneness of relationship occurs, man will not be happy as God is happy. Can you see the goodness of God? God wants man to experience the same blessedness that he experiences within himself. And the woman is going to be his solution. God declares in this first verse, he says, she will be a helper. Now there are a lot of words that God could have chosen in that that verse. He could have said companion. He could have said soulmate. He could have said lover or friend. Instead, he chooses helper. And I believe God's wise. So I believe that his word is the best word. But since the fall, there has been a campaign designed by Satan himself to somehow belittle the concept of helper. How many of us would boldly declare when someone asks us, what do you do? I'm a helper. What? We have been taught to either be the one leading others who help us, or to be the one who needs no help at all. But being a helper is a noble calling in the mind of God. You see, God himself is not ashamed to be called helper. Psalm 30, verse 10. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. At the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus says these words to his disciples in John 14, 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give to you another helper to be with you forever. We know that that other helper, that another helper is the Holy Spirit. But the fact that Jesus says another helper implies that he was the helper. So we've got the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all being willing to bear the title helper. Surely if God is willing to bear that title, we ought to be willing to bear it as well. It is not a slight on the woman to be titled helper. Theologians sometimes say that that the Various members of the Trinity always act in harmony. So there's never one member of the Trinity working to do something where the other members of the Trinity are also not working alongside to help them in that act. They're always working together, helping one another. Clearly, we need to renew our minds when it comes to the idea of helper. We must fill that word with dignity and nobility. And we must resist the thought that being a helper is not somehow enough. Now, generally speaking, being a helper is not something just for women. 
Both men and women should strive to be helpful. But the woman is uniquely designed to help man with his problem. And what's his problem? Being alone. You see, to this end, God does not just make her a helper, like someone who can sweep the floors and do the dishes. That's not the help that he's talking about. He's primarily concerned that she fix Adam's problem of being alone. And that's why it's important that he creates a fit helper. Now, what does fit mean? Doesn't mean fitness. <laughs> Not sure why she thought that was funny. <laughs> the word is ke neged. K E N E G E D. Ke neged. The ke it just means like or according to. And the neged means before another. In front of, facing, sometimes it's even spoken of as verbal speech that is going on. Communication. It seems to me, and while there's a lot of different ideas that you could gather from this, it is absolutely essential to understand that the woman was designed to help communicate with man. probably a stereotype, but it's probably a good one, that women are better communicators than men. But it's not only the ability to talk or to talk eloquently that is the issue. It is the depth of um, conversation. It is actually getting below the surface and uh, intermingling of the soul. I think women help men in many ways, but... Really, I, help, I think women help us most to get out of our shallowness and take us deeper so that we can experience true communion. Some men think that women are just talking all their wives are talking all the time. Too much. It would just be quiet. Instead of being like, oh, that's a bad thing. Remember, God intends for them to help draw us into true conversation and communion with one another. Of course, and this is really, I think, fun to think about. With the creation of the woman... God creates every other relationship. With the creation of the woman, every other form of relationship begins. He is forming a community. And I think it's true that men will have some form or some level of communion with other men. Women will have communion with other women. Men and women experience some level of uh, communication in every relationship that they partake of, varying degrees. Now, the marriage relationship has the capacity for the deepest level of communion. 
But I believe that when you are walking through the grocery store and you smile and say hello to an acquaintance, a faint level of communion takes place. Sometimes you have casual acquaintances. Sometimes you have deeper friendships. As Christians, we certainly, in sharing Christ, have a level of communion because we share Christ with one another. There are varying levels of communion, but it all begins right back here with the creation of the woman. By the way, I don't think we should demand every, every relationship to be on the deepest level. Nor should we demand that even the deepest relationship, the marriage relationship, should always be on the deepest level all the time. That's not the point. Not wrong to need some time of alone. I would tell us that we, and I, I'll try to bring this up as often as I can because I think it's so critical, technology has the ability to isolate you. I don't think that iPhones are evil necessarily. I don't think that uh, TV or other things are evil but I do think you have to control them and not let them control you because they do work to isolate us. I think because all relationships starts with the creation of the woman, I think we ought to be very, very enamored and in awe of who the woman is. God wants us to be amazed it's not just sentimentality. God really does want you to be amazed at the woman because he takes more time to describe to you the creation of the woman than he does the creation of the man. Verse 19, So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. God is setting you up. He's building tension. Man doesn't understand that he is alone and, and that he needs companionship, but God does, and God takes the time to let Adam feel his aloneness. God intentionally makes Adam disappointed. I'm not sure where... We got the idea of the dog being man's best friend, but that is entirely unscriptural. Animals can make good pets, but they are not able to provide the level of communion by which our heart was designed. You see, after this process, Adam goes, Ah, oh, wait a minute. You know, two of these kind of animal, two of these. Where's my companion? And so now, after God has prepped Adam, he creates the woman. And even in the process, even in the method of how he creates the woman, God is again exalting and explaining how wonderful the woman is.
You know, he might, he didn't have to even tell us how he created the woman. She could have just been there. We'd all be, well, I wonder how she got here. Right? Or he might have chosen some other method. These are just musings, but I think it's helpful. Is it not possible that God could have formed the woman from the dust of the ground just like he formed Adam? What would have been wrong with that? Women still have all the same features of a woman and yet formed from the ground. God didn't do that. Maybe God could have just spoken Eve into existence. Maybe he could have just said, boom, Eve. Voila, there she is. One I don't like, but I thought of. Maybe he could have taken one of the animals and made some improvements. The new and improved. You see, none of these methods would have gotten the job done. And I'm not limiting God's omnipotence. I'm only saying that God in his omnipotence also works things out according to his wisdom and he's doing those together and this is the best way to create a woman. Verses 21 and 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. First surgery, general anesthesia. I'm not sure it was avoidance of pain as much as it was maintaining a level of mystery. So God, uh, Adam would not actually see what occurs, but he would know that something has been removed from him. Now, it's hard to improve on Matthew Henry's statement. If you haven't heard it, you should bring it uh, to your memory more. But most people have heard this, but I will repeat it again. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. It's pretty awesome statement. By taking something from Adam's side, Adam was less than he was before. Something is missing from him. If he was complete before, now he is incomplete. And of course, we can do without a rib, but the point is, is that he is one less rib than when he was originally created. Of course, it is somewhat physical, but it is also symbolic. Man is now incomplete as a person, body and soul. Before the surgery, man was complete yet alone. After the surgery, man is incomplete Only in communion with the woman will he once again be complete and not alone. God then brings the woman to the man. 
Of course, God remains Father and Lord of Adam. Of course, Adam must give his highest devotion and obedience to God. And the Lord rightly is jealous that Adam loves him supremely. That's true. But here's what you need to see. God is not jealous in an evil way. God could have kept Adam from any other relationship. He could have kept him from experiencing this at all. But not God. He is so good. He is so loving that he is willing to, in a sense, share Adam with another being so that Adam will have communion with this other person. And God is up there saying, isn't that wonderful? Please do not doubt in the midst of your own painful and fallen situation. Do not doubt the character of God's good love towards you. You may not be experiencing communion in your relationships right now. But never for a moment think that it is in God's eternal plan to keep you from the experience of true communion. He wants it more than anyone else. Verse 23 The man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The man's reaction is profound, but it is to be expected. Is it really possible that God could have gone to all this detail and the man go, oh, not quite what I was looking for. Adam is making a physical observation when he says bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That is a physical observation. But it is more than just a physical observation. The man and the woman are not simply made of similar materials. Adam recognizes when he looks at the woman, he sees himself. Now I'll try to illustrate this in a very poor, but it's a thing that popped into my head. In my office, there is a picture frame of Geronimo. I won't go into the whole Geronimo reasons for that, but there's a picture of Geronimo, and it's, the frame is of really old wood. It's a yellow poplar. I asked my dad about that. Um, and there's nothing particularly special about yellow poplars. poplars lots, of, lots of trees out there made of yellow poplar. But that frame was fashioned out of the siding of the barn on the farm where I grew up. I think the barn was built in the 1840s. I worked in that barn. I played in that barn. I contemplated life sitting up on the, on the beams up in the rafters. I still remember those memories. I remember playing with my brother. I remember beating my brother up for the first time in that barn. When I look at the frame in my office, I see all those memories. I see that barn, even though it's been long destroyed. It's not even there anymore. 
When Adam sees the woman, he doesn't just see a woman, he sees himself. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, that's what he sees. She was of his essence, but not his person. She was a different person and other, and yet she was him. So finally, he is saying what the Trinity, and I'm not saying he's putting all this together in terms of Trinity, but what God is experiencing, I now have the capacity to experience. The last two verses, 24 and 25, make very clear That this communion between the man and the woman is establishing the institution of marriage. One man, one woman, permanent for a lifetime. That's what it's establishing. There's a sense that this, this one man, one woman, the exclusivity of that enables the deepest levels of communion. I think the, the permanency of it in some way establishes the lifelong um, uh, necessity of experiencing this communion over time because the the trinity obviously was experiencing uh, their communion over eternity so there's this lifelongness there's this exclusivity and it says here as like a an editorial statement um, they shall leave a father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh And in that, God is declaring that the goal of every marriage is oneness, one flesh, physical and spiritual oneness. And just so you know, this is the reason why God does not want sex before or outside of marriage. Not because there's something out there that's really, really good, he just doesn't want you to have it. He wants to preserve the sexual relationship to a lifelong commitment where true love is being developed. God is good in this. We are deceived and stupid, foolish, and I think we've all in some sense been fools at one point in this, thinking that actual sexual expression is good outside of marriage. The nakedness of the man and the woman is more than physical nakedness. They are known by one another. They are in face-to-face communion with one another. Their souls are bare before one another, and they are not ashamed. Of course, there was no sin at this time, so there's not the the shame of sin. But I do think that this this institution of communion, is there is a safety, there is a security in being fully known in this safe and secure place. The man and his, they have to leave their father and mother. It doesn't mean leave in every sense father and mother. But there is a uniqueness and an exclusivity to the marriage relationship, and that is where we should have our deepest commitment. We can only imagine what it would have been like if Adam and Eve had not fallen into sin. Every one of you, whether you are in a healthy marriage or a difficult one, whether you are widowed or divorced or single, it does not matter. Every one of us, in some sense, 
has failed to experience the fullness of the communion with someone just like us. Even in the best marriage, we've all fallen short. Loneliness is real for everyone, some more than others. Here's a sad comment, but it's one that needs to be said. Many will leave this life having tasted little of the communion that has been set forth in this passage. I don't say that to sound depressing. I hopefully say it to give you hope. You see, when God created Eve, he did not just have Eve in mind. He didn't even have in mind the human relationships of this life per se, His heart was fixed upon giving his beloved son an eternal bride. If you are going to hunger and thirst for true communion in an eternal marriage, you must believe that God has compassion in your present loneliness. You must understand that he's not aloof to your problems and your struggles. Jesus lived this life. He took on flesh and blood. He experienced pain and disappointment and frustration in relationships, even mocking and betrayal. And while he hung on the cross, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I know that God in in every sense had not forsaken Christ, but I also know that as he bore the weight of our sin, there was, a, there was a breach, there was a separation of the, the, the communion that the Father and the Son had experienced throughout all eternity. And he's on the cross and he's saying, oh my goodness, you have forsaken me. Not because he had done anything wrong, but because he bore your sin. Jesus on that cross felt aloneness. Deeper than the lashes, the cuts, the scars, the spear that pierced his side. It was feeling the anger of his father against sin and his own aloneness. Why would Jesus do that? Why would he? Hebrews 12.2 says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning It's shame. What was this joy? It was the joy of having his own bride. His own fit helper. The church. Jesus endured shame so that we could stand before him naked and without shame. Holy and blameless in his sight. It was from the blood of Jesus' side that our wedding day was secured. Maybe the best way to describe this, what is it that Jesus was thinking on that day as he's on the cross enduring the shame? It was his thought that one day the Father would bring to him a bride And he would look at her and say, bone of my bone, flesh 
of my flesh at last. It is one thing to know that you are made complete in Jesus. It is quite another to know that Jesus experiences completeness of his joy only in communion with us. I don't care how much communion or lack of communion you have experienced in this life, and this life has made it bitter. I mean, just just read the stories and you know how hard it has been for some people in life. Talk to people. Pain is everywhere. No matter how much communion is kept from you in this life, nothing will ever rob you of the fullness of communion that awaits you on that day. Jesus tells you that even when you partake of communion, you can taste that wedding day. You can in some sense say, yes, that is mine. As you seek the Lord in prayer, not only as Father and Lord, which we do, but also you seek Jesus as your groom to have fellowship with you. As you study his word, he is speaking love language to you. When we celebrate communion, as Calvin says, it is the kiss of Christ to you. And every time you participate in the sacrament of communion, you are reaffirming your faith in that eternal communion. Do you believe that he is making you into a fit helper? Do you believe that Jesus will one day look at us and say, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh? Are you looking forward to being his fit helper? I am. I don't understand it. It scares me. But that's what makes everything else meaningful. It's what makes life doable. That everything within my being will be satisfied as I have this fellowship with Christ and with the rest of the church for all eternity. Elders, if you would, please come forward, and we will try to segue right into communion.